0: Judges chapter 9, we're, we're going to be in this entire chapter this morning. Now, This past week I've been thinking about how it's sort of odd how my mind, and I assume your mind, sort of fixates on sort of inconsistencies that, that I see in this world. So I was, I was driving, and, um, driving down the road and seeing a bunch of houses. I don't remember what any of these houses look like except for one. With, uh, there was one that had a shocking pink door. I was, the, the only other house I remember seeing is, it was at night, and there was a house with Christmas lights on. If you have Christmas lights, in my opinion, I think that's wrong. Okay. So we have this sort of tendency where we fixate on things that are odd, things that stand out. When I was in college, I lived in a house with a handful of guys. The house that we lived in was not nice, okay? You can ask my wife. There was nothing nice about this house. It was just normal. We had a couch and some chairs and a dining room table. It was just average, normal. Except for one thing. There was a chair by the fireplace. One day when my roommate was driving home from class, he saw a chair on the side of the road with a free sign. All good things come with the sign free, all right? And so, now, this not only was a jackpot, it was the ultimate jackpot because this was a fully functioning dental chair. (laughs) I know you guys are so jealous right now. (laughs) Evidently, the dental office was getting rid of their old chairs, and so what they purged, we plundered. Now, I don't remember the color of our house that we lived in or what kind of couch we had or even what kind of TV. I don't remember lots of things about that period of my life. But I do remember one chair that you could sit in right by the fireplace, press a button, and you would recline until your heart's content. (laughs) Now, there's sort of a psychological principle here that we fixate on things that stand out to us, right? As we sort of go on our merry ways, living generally pretty mundane lives, every once in a while we sort of encounter a speed bump, things that just don't make sense to us or, or things that we see or experience that stand out to us. In, very, in the same way, this is what we come to in chapter 9 of the book of Judges, Up to this point, there's been a predictable pattern. There's been a cycle. Israel does evil in the sight of God. God then raises up a foreign nation to enslave them or come after them. They then cry out to the Lord. God then raises up a Savior and delivers them. They then repent, come back to the Lord, and there's rest until that judge and Savior dies, and then the cycle is repeated over and over again. That's the cycle we find in the first eight chapters of the book of Judges. And so when we get to chapter 9, it breaks all of the norms. It breaks the mold. And so we need to ask, why is this here? Why is this chapter in the book of Judges? Why did the author put it right in the middle of this book? What sort of purposes does it fulfill? I mean, when you think about it, we learn in verse 22 of chapter 9 that this story, that sort of time period, time span, is only three years, roughly three years. There are other judges that judge for decades, and they only get one or two or three verses. Abimelech gets 57 verses. Abimelech, as we're going to learn, is not a judge, not properly speaking. He's sort of an anti-judge. He's a counterfeit judge. Abimelech represents evil. And so the author places this chapter so, such that we can consider not just the problem of evil, but instead that we might consider the reality of evil. And where we can find hope in the midst of evil. That basically is the big idea of chapter 9 of Judges. It'll be behind me, and it's this, that though evil is real, God will triumph over evil. That's what we're going to look at today. So if you will, turn with me to Judges chapter 9. Actually, I'm going to start in chapter 8, verse 33, and then read the first few verses. So starting back in verse 33 to kind of give us some context. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Derebaal, that is Gideon, in return for all that the good that he had done to Israel. Now verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam r- rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke to these words on behalf in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. And they gave, to, and they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-Bareth, with, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the son of Jerubal. Seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. We'll stop there. So the end of chapter 8, it kind of ends in a, in a tragic note. Gideon, the, the, the conqueror of Midian, He takes many wives, including a concubine from Shechem, and they have a son named Abimelech. Now, Shechem was a a sort of pre-Israelite town filled with mostly Canaanites. Well, like so many illegitimate sons, Abimelech is insecure in his family. Yes, his father is Gideon, King Gideon. Even his name means my father is king And yet he's an outsider, isn't he? He's an outsider ethnically. He's half Israelite, half Canaanite, half Shechemite. And so he presumably gets tired of being the black sheep of the family. He gets tired of being an outsider, and he makes a power grab. And so he appeals to the leaders of Shechem, and he he says, basically, wouldn't it be better if I just ruled over you than have 70 rulers? And then not only that, he he appeals to his his mother's ethnicity and says, I'm one of you. I'm bone of your bone. Flesh of your flesh. Well, they like what they hear, don't they? Verse 2. And so the the leaders sort of make a, a alliance, a political alliance with Abimelech. And they give him money. We'll soon see that it's blood money. They go into the temple of their god in Shechem, verse 4, and they give him 70 pieces of silver to murder 70 brothers of Abimelech. If you are wondering what these men's lives were worth, it seems simple. Each man's life was worth one silver coin. And so then with sort of money in hand, Abimelech hires some thugs, right, some mercenaries, some assassins to go to go up to where they lived and to murder them. Verse 5. And they're successful, aren't they? Almost. They kill most. The youngest son, Jotham, he hides. And they can't kill him. Well, job almost done. And so with most of the brothers out of the way, Abimelech is in Shechem crowned king. The elders and the official make him the king. Well, that is until Jotham comes out of hiding. Look starting in verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim, and he cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Rain over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. Uh, but the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, ah, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Pretty intense. So, back in verse 7, Jotham stands on Mount Gerizim, which was a few miles from Shechem. It was the perfect vantage point to be seen and heard, but not killed. And as he stands on Mount Gerizim, he starts teaching, preaching, and he he sort of gives them a fable. We can think of this as a parable, one of the earliest parables in your Bible. And basically, he says, uh, the trees want a king over them. And so they look to an olive tree and say, will you be our king? And the olive tree says, nope. And they look to the fig tree and say, will you be our king? And the fig tree says, not a chance. And then they look to the vine, ask the vine to be a king, and they say, nope, I'm not going to be your king either. And finally, after three rejections, they ask the bramble, a thorny bush. Come rule over us, the trees say. And the bramble ac- accepts. But did you notice the threat, the, the cruel condition? He says, I will rule over you. But if you burn me, I'll burn you. Unlike the olive and the fig and the vine, the bramble is a, it's a wild bush, it's dangerous. Unpredictable. Olive trees and fig trees and vines, they were very, very valuable. That was the basic economy in Israel. But brambles, the the sort of thorny bushes, they weren't valuable at all. They were too short and thorny to get shade in the day. They would catch fire, and they could easily overtake other crops. Now, if you're wondering, like, okay, what what's the point of this sort of parable? Well, in verses 16 through 21, Jotham basically explains the point of the parable. The trees are Shechem. The bramble is Abimelech. And essentially, Jotham's parable is if Abimelech and Shechem were fair to one another, if they treated each other justly in making this partnership, then there'll be some blessings. But if they did this in any unjust way, any unfair way, which we know they did, they're going to burn each other, right? In Shakespearean terms, Jotham pronounces a curse upon both their houses, a burning bush, a burning curse. And so then in verse 21, after Jotham gives this parable, sort of explains this parable, he's got to get out of there. And in verse 21, he flees. And then starting in verse 22, we find the first embers of that raging fire. In verse 22 through the end of the chapter, I think the easiest way to think about this is this is a Western, but it's a really bad Western. It has all the chaos of Westerns. It has sort of like the body count of a Western. It has the, the, the innocent bystanders of a Western, but there's no gunslinging hero in this Western, which makes it a bad Western, right? There's no Buffalo Bill or Annie Oakley or Davy Crockett. None of that. Let me, just give, let, let, let me give you a taste of it. Look at verse 25. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him, on the, him being Abimelech, on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way. Here's one of the earliest train robbers. Then 26, And Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives. And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out to the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyard and trod them and held a festival. And they went to the house of their god and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Enter a new character. Gael. Now, Gail's a sort of nobody. His last name, Ebed, means he's a nobody. It means servant. He's a nobody. But he walks into the saloon with all the townspeople. They start drinking too much. And then he starts talking smack about Abimelech. He attacks his strength. He even mocks his ethnicity. Well, word gets out to Abimelech from his trusty officer, his sort of trusty sidekick, Zebul, verses 30 and 31. And at this point, Abimelech comes like fire upon Shechem. If you look at verses 34 through 40, we have this sort of weird and humorous encounter between Gael and Zebul. They're they're out in front of the city gate, and all of a sudden Gael looks out and he sees men charging down, and he says, there are men coming down. But Zeebo's, you know, he, he's Abimelech's man, and so he goes, no, you, you forgot to put on your glasses. No, that's just the shape of the mountain. Those aren't men, right? He, he's stalling. Finally, Gale's like, no, those are men, and they're coming. Those are Abimelech's men. And then Zebul says, yeah, they are. You're right. But remember when we were you know, out in the saloon, and you were talking that you could take him. Why don't you go out and see if you can take out Abimelech and his men? Well, that's exactly what happens. But unfortunately for Gale, it was a bloodbath, wasn't it? And we see that there's just blood, there's bodies everywhere, and Gale flees, never to be seen again. Now you'd think that was enough, wasn't it? Not for Abimelech. Shechem crossed him. Now the brambles, anger, begins to burn. So now he goes against not just his political enemies or his political adversaries, now he goes after everyone in Shechem. He captures the whole city. And then, did you notice what he does to the land? He salts the land. He throws salt on the land, meaning that it's going to be years for it to produce any crops. That's how angry he is. Well, the remaining Shechemites after this take refuge in the temple of their god. It's a stronghold, verse 46, but Abimelech then leads his men to literally burn it down. Verse 49 reads this way, so all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women also died. Now let me read how this story ends starting in this verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and captured and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire, just like he had done earlier. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. So at the end of the story, Abimelech turns his attention to a close neighbor. Evidently and presumably, there were some Shechemites hiding out in that city, and so he tries to do the same thing that he had done earlier. He comes close to the tower, but unfortunately for Abimelech, there was a a woman with pretty big biceps, who was carrying a big, relatively big millstone, and dropped it on his head. And yet, Abimelech is so proud, right? It wasn't just that his head was bruised, his pride was bruised. He's sort of a, a chauvinist, we see here, and he says, lest a woman have glory over me. And so he turns to his armor bearer, his servant, and says, kill me. Rather, better be dead from assisted suicide than to die by the hands of a woman. The end. Now, I, I, in one sense, I suppose this is not the sort of Bible story you tell when you tuck your kids in at night. But it's in our Bible. And it's in our Bible for really good reason. So let me just, by way of observation and then application, make four observation, four sort of truths that we learn in this text. So first, evil is real. In chapter 9, we sort of get a, I don't know if you noticed it, a, a hell-on-earth scenario. We read of manipulation and an unquenchable desire for power. We see lying, racial prejudice. We see murder, corruption. We see blood money, idol worship. We see human sacrifice. The brothers of Abimelech, they die on a stone table. Verse 5. men and We see that in verse 5. We, we also see men and women being burned alive. We see the destruction of the land. I mean, it's no wonder, we're not surprised when we read in verse 23 that an evil spirit is involved in all of this. This is demonic, this is evil, this is hellish. This is a sort of description of evil. In many ways, we're supposed to, as we look at this chapter, see a description of evil. And as we look at Abimelech, we're supposed to see evil. Right? Up until this point, when God raises up judges and saviors, though they're all sinful, they're not perfect, we're, we're meant to see, in one sense, the ultimate savior to come, Jesus Christ. They're sort of types and shadows of the ultimate thing. Abimelech is not a shadow of a savior. He's a shadow of the anti-savior. He's a type of the ultimate evil one, Satan himself. Because there is real evil and there is a real personal evil one who like abimelech is all about deception and manipulation and power and destruction now now in one sense i assume most of us would agree in yes evil exists right you don't need to turn on the news or watch your social media feed to realize that there is evil out there but, but what do you do with that what do you do in light of that reality Do we just pretend? I mean, it's one thing to say evil exists in general, but if you look at church history, Christians have often sometimes not named evil in particular. Things like slavery, anti-Semitism. So it's one thing to say, yes, evil exists, but sometimes we just pretend that it doesn't exist today. Or it doesn't exist in our sphere of influence. We just kind of harness our inner Pollyanna. Or maybe we're just, we were raised on the power of positive thinking. We just need to think positive thoughts. We all sort of have to cope with the reality of this evil world. And chapter 9 makes us come to grips with this and help us to think through how is it that the Christian should cope with the reality of evil. Evil exists, but then second, though evil exists, we learn that God is yet sovereign over evil. All evil is destruction. All evil leads to destruction, right? We see that in the text. Pretty much every character destructs in chapter 9. Evil is, by definition, destructive. And yet, because this happens so often, sometimes we just see, oh, there's just a natural consequence to evil, and we think, well, maybe God is just distant from evil. Or God was busy when some sort of evil happened. Or God just had his hands tied. I mean, just name the evil, and it can be easy to just think, Well, in order for me to make sense of this, I have to un-God God. God. Now, we do need to mourn and make sense of evil. And sometimes in order to do that, we just want to un-God God in a sense. We want to strip God of his greatness and glory and bigness because we think in doing so, that'll comfort us. But that reality, that sort of theology, that sort of truth, it doesn't comfort for long. It does us no good to make God ungodlike as we experience and as we see evil and suffering. And we learn this in, in at least two places in our text today. We we learned that God, in the midst of evil, in the midst of the evil of chapter 9, he's still in control. He's still sovereign. Right? Look at verse 23. Our text says, And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, and the violence done to the seventy sons of Gideon, that he might come and that their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And then look down in verse 56. This is sort of a, a summary of, uh, of the whole chapter. And God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return to their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Gideon. We see two truths running perfectly parallel to one another. God is sovereign over evil. And he's sovereign over evil in such a way that he is not the author of evil. And secondly, Abimelech and Shechem are still morally responsible for their evil actions. Moral responsibility with God's sovereignty are compatible truths. Now, that might be a mental conundrum for us, making sense of that. But it's not a conundrum in your Bibles. Those two things are married. Those two truths are dance partners. Those two truths are side by side. They're compatible. And I think how this works itself out is because often when we think about, like, evangelism, for instance, we think, well, we need a really big God in the midst of evangelism. We almost sometimes feel, when we're talking to someone who, who might not share our same worldview, that we're like Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, right? And God says, make these bones live. And we think, we can't do that. That's nuts. And so when we do evangelism, we sometimes think, we need a big God. But we need a big God in the midst of our suffering as well. We need a God who stands for us in our suffering. We need a God who stands with us in our suffering. And we need a God who stands above us in our suffering. Evil exists. It's real. As such, we need an evil-wielding God who's so big that he can comfort us. And that's what our text reminds us, that even in the darkest days, even in hellish-like stories like we read in chapter 9 of the book of Judges, God is yet bigger than hell. Sometimes some of the most profound and simple theology are in kids' songs. It's true, God holds the whole world in his hands, all of it, even a world that this side of heaven is filled with evil and suffering. So first, there is evil, second, God is sovereign over evil, and now third, evil will be judged. In the stories that precede and follow this chapter, we learn basically that God saves people who are undeserving. That's the Christian gospel. If you don't know the Christian gospel, that's basically it. God saves the undeserving through Jesus Christ. Time and time again, that's the truth we learn in the book of Judges. But not in this story, not in chapter 9. This story is not about God showing grace to sinners. This is a story about God giving sinners exactly what they deserve. You could put it this way. This is a story about what happens when grace is not injected into a, uh, into a story or narrative. And if you look closely, you'll see that the judgment that comes on Shechem and Abimelech, it actually comes with like mathematical precision. Just, just think of this. Abimelech goes to Shechem to incite leaders to conspire against Gideon's sons. And that's answered by Gael's arrival in Shechem to incite leaders to conspire with him against Abimelech. They're like mirror images. Or the ambush of the men in Shechem against Abimelech in verse 25 is answered by the ambush set by Abimelech against Shechem in verse 34. Or lastly, think of this. Abimelech, who killed his brothers on one stone, verse 5, is killed in verse 53 by one stone. There's a a mathematical precision to the judgment that comes upon Shechem and Abimelech. As the story unfolds, evil answers to evil. Judgment is precisely and mathematically dealt out. Because in here, we we see a description of what judgment is will look like. It's a picture of divine judgment, God's wrath upon evil and God's wrath upon sin. Evil is on the clock. Its time is running out. It will be judged fully and finally one day. But as sure as God's judgment came upon Abimelech and Shechem, so shall all evil be judged one day by God. And perhaps the the most intense way we see this is if you look at the last book of the Bible. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, one of the themes, one of the major themes, is that God will judge evil and sin perfectly and completely. And there will be no claim and no evil or no injustice or no unfairness that will be able to make a claim against God. You see this even how the book of Revelation is structured. There's, There's a whole pattern of visions which underscore the completeness of God's judgment. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. There's a whole series, each composed of seven judges like the seven days of creation, which means that God's judgment will one day be fully and finally complete and exhausted. I think one of the most stirring ways we are stirring, stirring texts we see this is in chapter 11, verse 15. Let me just read it. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said. The kingdom of the world has come, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to God. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants and the prophets and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Evil will be fully and exhaustively and completely judged. which doesn't mean that we don't fight for justice this side of heaven. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't oppose injustice in this world. It just means that the fire of evil and injustice will not be fully put out this side of heaven. In all the little ways that we see a more fair world or a less unjust world, they're appetizers of the real thing. They're they're a breaking in of the kingdom of God. And they're a reminder to us of the future judgment that will come upon evil. You could think of it this way. Evil has been sentenced. Evil is just awaiting its execution date. Evil will be destroyed in the end. But the last kind of observation and question I want to leave with is this. How? I think our text hints at it evil will be defeated by an ironic twist. In our text, God uses the evil of Shechem to destroy the evil of Abimelech. Evil conquered evil. And that, in small part, is a picture of what God does in large part, centuries later, through the ministry of Jesus Christ. St. Augustine, who was an early church father, he preached a sermon pointing this very reality out, and he summarized this truth this way. The devil was defeated by his own victorious achievements. The devil was exultant when Christ died, and by that very death of Christ was the devil conquered. It's as though he took the bait in a mouse trap. Satan was delighting, delighted in the death, as being the commander of death. And what he delighted in, that's where the trap was set for him. The mouse trap for the devil was the cross of the Lord, the bait he would be caught by, the death of the Lord. God conquers evil by evil. The devil was like a a mouse and God dangled the Son of God and his death before the devil, and he he bit. He went after it like cheese. He couldn't contain himself. He is, after all, the commander of death. And so we enter Judas, making sure that God's son would die, and he, in his smug pride, thinks that he has won. But little does he know, in the victory of this son's death, is his own defeat. And the very doing of this evil act was the very undoing of all evil. What appeared to be an instrument of Satan's victory, the death of Jesus, well, it ironically turned out to be the very instrument of his own defeat. God conquered evil by sending Jesus to die for evil. But not evil in general evil in particular. In the Bible, sin is not just something out there. It's not just some boogeyman out there in the world. Sin is something inside of all of us. Evil might be expressed outside. It might play on, uh, outside, but it gets birthed always in the human heart. The human heart, after all, is sick with Sin. Which is why, in our sin and in our evil acts, we don't need a sort of spiritual plastic surgery. We don't need to just merely look a little bit better. We don't need a gospel of sin management. We don't need spiritual Botox. The metaphor is we need a heart transplant, we need a saver who conquers sin and evil. And sin and evil, not just out there, but inside us all. All of us ultimately need a leader and a saver who doesn't just save us from evil outside of ourselves. We need a leader who saves us from the evil inside our own hearts. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. A savior who saves us from ourselves. In many ways, what we're going to find in the rest of the book of Judges is that there aren't that many foreign nations that come at at Israel. Because in many ways, the theme is, they don't need just saving from foreign nations. They need saving from themselves. And that's true with us as well. So as it relates to Abimelech and Shechem, and evil that are on their hands we need to realize that we also have blood on our hands. And so the question of Judges 9 leaves us with this. It's a sort of haunting question. Do you want the judgment for your sin and evil coming upon your head, like Abimelech? Or would you rather trade that in and have that evil and sin on Jesus' head? That's what this chapter is a reminder of this morning. Now, I'll I'll be frank that this chapter is an easy reading. It's not always pleasant reading, but it is important reading. It's a warning to us. It's a reminder to us. And like so many good stories, it comes with a twist. It reminds us of the irony that the death of Jesus. In that act came the very death of death itself. Evil is real. God is sovereign over evil. Evil will be judged, but there is hope. Hope for those who put their trust in faith in Jesus Christ. Hope even in a world filled with evil. Let's pray. God, we, we humbly confess that, that all of us have sinned, will sinned, because we ha- are sinners. And yet, Lord, we are grateful that when you look at us, you look at us through your, the lens of the cross, and that we get your righteousness because you took our unrighteousness. Lord, we, we, we thank you for the haunting and the sobering reality that, that not only that evil exists, not only that you're in control and sovereign even in the midst of evil, but, but that judgment will come upon evil, Lord. Lord, we look forward to that when you will wipe away every tear and that we will be in your presence glorified forever and ever. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.